So the other day I had this random moment uh, on Twitter um, where I ran across this little um, tweet that was actually a retweet from someone else. And, and quite honestly, I don't think it was a random moment. I think it was a God-ordained moment for me. But this, this original tweet came from a very popular website uh, for women. And they posted a tweet that read just like this. It said, when the pressure to perform weighs heavily, whisper these words of grace to your heart. Because God's love is perfect, I don't have to be. Let me, let me read that again to you. When, when, when the pressure to perform weighs heavy, whisper words of grace to your heart. Because God's love is perfect, I don't have to be. Now when I saw this, I, I, I just smiled because it was such a great phrase for the journey that, that I have felt that God has had Amy and me on for, for quite a while now. And then my heart broke as I read the comments that follow because um, I, I went to the website where, where this uh, original tweet had come from and, and I started looking at all the comments uh, and it was all these women that were talking about the, the issue of perfection and it almost was like a little cat fight that broke out. You know how most any thread underneath almost any comment on the website turns into a fight. But one woman... Um, in talking about perfection, she actually wrote, if God has called me to it, I don't care what is said, I will die trying. And as soon as I read this, I thought to myself, you poor lady, you will go through life never feeling good enough, never feeling like you measure up, never feeling secure in your relationship with Christ, and never feeling like you've done enough. And I shared this little conversation with Amy, and, and she told me that, that this is quite a common issue that many, many women deal with, never feeling that they measure up, never feeling like they could be perfect, or always, always feeling, I'm sorry, always feeling like they have to be perfect, feeling like that they are falling short of someone's standard, or, or feeling like they're never doing enough. And immediately I thought back to a John Eldridge book that I read years ago called Wild at Heart, which is all about raising boys, and he says in the book that the number one question that every man faces and every man struggles with is, do I have what it takes? See, I believe that one of the enemy's favorite schemes is to get us to put our focus on ourselves, to get our focus off of Christ and his gospel, and then to hammer us with lies to basically turn us against ourselves. And what happens is we end up swimming in this sea of thoughts that whisper things like this to us. No matter how hard we try, it's never good enough. Or regardless of what you become, it will never be all that you could have been. Or no matter what we do, it's never, ever enough. And as a result of those lies, what happens? That we start, we start responding. M many of our responses are like knee-jerk responses to these things. And one of the knee-jerk responses that, that we immediately go to is we, we begin to live with this restlessness in our soul that is enough is never enough. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I struggle with this. I am, I am a very driven person. I'm very competitive. Um, I played sports throughout college, and so I have a very competitive nature. I'm results-oriented. Some of my staff may tell you that I'm wound a bit tightly. Um, I'm like that movie Top Gun. I have a need. I have a need for... Speed, okay, there's a few of you 80s children in here, um, much more in the first service. 
But, you know, I, I just, I desperately want to make a difference for God's kingdom. I, I've, I've prayed this prayer since I was in high school. God, just use me. I, I, I desperately want to see lives changed. But I also live with this state of, of restlessness inside of me that, that I don't always think is healthy. And at the end of the day, I'm learning to ask myself the question, what is it that is driving me? What's going on in the depths of what ultimately motivates me? If it were all taken away tomorrow, could I actually just be able to rest in who I am in Christ? Am I content in what I have in Jesus, or does there have to be more? Is Jesus actually enough? St. Augustine, in talking about Jesus, he said, You made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Let me say that again. You made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. I read this past week that currently there are over or nearly 9 million people in the U.S. that take prescription medicine for sleep, for sleep disorders. According to the Institute of Medicine, there are actually 40 to 50 million people in the United States that struggle with some type of sleep disorder. And could it be that the reason that, that, that there is this restlessness in so many people's lives enough that, that they, can't get, they can't even get to sleep at night or they can't stay asleep at night is, is because there's this feeling that enough is never enough. Enough is just never enough. The other knee-jerk, that reaction, knee-jerk reaction that we have is that we attribute the measure of God's love and forgiveness and acceptance um, to the quantity and quality of our deeds. Author Jerry Bridges says it this way. He says, my observation of Christendom is that most of us tend to base our relationship with God on our performance instead of his grace. If we performed well, whatever well is in our opinion, then we expect God to bless us. If we haven't done so well, our expectations are reduced accordingly. In this sense, we live, we live, um, we live by works rather than by grace. We're saved by grace, but we're living by the sweat of our own performance. Moreover, we're always, we're always challenging ourselves and one another to try harder. We believe that success in the Christian life, however we define success, is basically up to us. Our, it's up to our commitment, our discipline, our, our zeal. Or, and with some, some help you know, from God along the way, we, we in turn give lip service to the words of the Apostle Paul, where he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But our unspoken motto is actually, God helps those who help them, who helps themselves. And so... We attribute this measure of, of God's love and forgiveness and acceptance to the quantity and quality of our, of our deeds. And then, oftentimes, what we also do is we overcommit ourselves to try to earn God's favor. I think as a whole, especially here in the United States, we're a culture that has overcommitted ourselves to, to just about everything. We've overcommitted ourselves to work. We've overcommitted ourselves to our kids' activities. We've overcommitted ourselves to our own social activities or their social activities. And we've even overcommitted ourselves to the church. And, I mean, a huge shout-out to all the servant volunteers here at Westridge. I mean, this church doesn't operate without you. I mean, you're, you are certainly one of our best re- resources. But, however, as we've talked about over, you know, over the last several months, we've talked more and more about the idea of moralism and performance-based Christianity and even grace. Um, so many people have come up to me and confessed to me that the reason that they overcommit to things like social activities and kids' activities and just, I mean, church and all, just overcommitment is that without even realizing it, they're desperately trying to earn God's favor. Author Tully and Chavigian defines this as performance-ism. 
Performanceism is the mindset that equates our identity and value directly with our performance and accomplishments. He says life becomes a hamster wheel of endless earning and proving and maintenance and management and controlling where all we see is our own feet. Performanceism causes us to live in a state of anxiety, fear, and resentment until we end up heavily medicated in the hospital or just really, really unhappy. Another thing that we do, knee-jerk reaction, is, is we strive for perfection. And not only do we strive for perfection, but we try to hold other people to a standard that we could never, ever achieve ourselves, even on our best day. I mentioned a few months ago that according to a, a new Pew form, uh, form research uh, study that came out last fall, the percentage of people in the United States that are under 30 that claim to have no religious affiliation is now climbed nearly to 35%. And as a former student pastor and, and someone who obviously continues to speak weekly to that group um, that, that is here, it just breaks my heart. But I wondered this past week as I was looking and thinking through that again, I, I wonder if part of the reason these statistics seem to be climbing so rapidly with each generation is because we position a relationship with Jesus to be all about rules, rules, and more rules. A constant striving for good behavior, a constant striving for clean living and judgment instead of a place of hope and grace and forgiveness for those who have failed over and over and over and over again. I mean, I cannot tell you how many, how many years of my early Christian life I just simply spent just doing sin management and trying just so hard to be perfect because I, I wanted God to be happy with me. And it breaks my heart to even think back on that because I realized I missed out on understanding the depths of His grace and His love because I was so worried about His judgment. Now, with that said, I don't, don't misunderstand me in what I'm saying. God, in part of his character, is judgment. He is just. But if that's the predominant image of God and, and, and the part that you spend most of your time focusing your attention on and the, focus, and the time that you're worried about, then you're going to end up exhausted. You're going to end up anxious. You're going to end up fearful. You're going to end up full of, just, full of guilt. You're going to end up feeling lonely. And eventually, you're going to get angry. And I wonder... And I'm just, I'm, honestly, I'm just speaking out loud up here right now, just thinking out loud, actually. I, I wonder if the reason so many young adults are leaving the church is not because we don't have some kind of program or some kind of place for them to belong, but be just, just because they're just tired of trying to perform and they've just given up on attempting to meet a standard of perfection that they just never, they, they can't attain to. They just can't reach it. And so they've just, they just leave. And just say, I, I can't reach it. And listen to me, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not throwing stones to any parent up here. I have a college student right now um, in my own life, my oldest son. But as I've talked about this and, I've, and I wrote this, I, I've asked myself, and, and hopefully I've asked myself, am I, if I've been part of the problem here. And then finally, when we buy into the lie that we're not doing enough, we begin to add idols to our relationship with Jesus. Talian Chavidjian says, idolatry is simply trying to build our identity on something besides Jesus. An idol is anything or anyone that you conclude in your heart you must have in order for your life to be meaningful, valuable, secure, exciting, or free. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. What is it that you have to have in your life right now for your life to be meaningful, valuable, secure, exciting, or free? Who is it? What is it? I mean, is it, is it the acceptance of others? 
Is it significance in, in the eyes of the world or in someone else's eyes? Is it, is it success? Maybe it's power. Maybe, it's, maybe for some of you, it's the, needs, it's the need for your kids to perform well. Whether it's a sports field or an academic field or a, a drama field or a music field. I mean, you base your own significance and your own self-worth on, your, on how well your children are doing. But whatever is outside of, whatever that is outside of Jesus, that has become your idol. Martin Luther says, whatever your heart clings to and confides in is really your God. That's why God is so passionate about us smashing our idols. We see it throughout the Old Testament. We see it implied and spoken of in the New Testament. In his word, he calls anything that's an idol a delusion, worthless, and less than nothing. Something that just creates bondage in our lives. Something that, that, that holds us captive. Something that turns us into a spiritual orphan. And I want you to know that Jesus came to set captives free. He came to liberate us from, 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 from bondage. He came to point us to the Father. In, in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 11, he says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And so just to sum that up, Paul says, listen, because of Jesus, I have been given all power to endure and overcome whatever trials or temptations may come my way. Because of Jesus, I have full access to the Father. Because of Jesus, I am full heir of everything my Father has promised me as one of his children. Because of Jesus, I have been delivered from the realm of Satan and the power of evil. Because of Jesus, I have, I, I, my sins have been forgiven. And then he goes on to say in Colossians 2, 9, he says, For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And I love that because the word fullness here means complete. That means that nothing more has to be done. Nothing needs to be added. I can rest. You can rest. I don't have to perform. You don't have to perform. We can actually throw away our idols because everything that we need, we already have in Jesus Christ. Listen, as, as some of you may know, Amy and I spend a lot of our, uh, our time investing in the lives of, of younger couples in ministry, um, mostly in the church planning world. And one of the biggest issues that young pastors and their wives deal with is just acceptance, the idea of acceptance. They struggle with the idea that their people don't feel like they're doing enough. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had people over the last many years will come up to me and say, hey, what is it that you do all week long? I mean, it, really, that's pretty much what you do is just you get up on Sunday and you speak for three times and we pay you for that? I mean, is there, you do something else. And, and it's so funny trying to explain to somebody what I do all week long. I, I, and it's hard because, I, I mean, it overwhelms me, but it's hard to sometimes explain all the, you know, the stuff that goes on. But pastors and their spouses feel this struggle, and they, they struggle with the idea that their people don't feel like they're doing enough. And so what they do is they overcommit themselves, and they say yes to everything, even at the cost of their own marriage and their own family, just to try to prove their worth to someone else. And quite honestly, this is an issue that I had to deal with and I had to settle a long time ago. Would I base all of my self-worth in what people thought of me and my performance as a pastor or would I base all of my self-worth in what God's word and what his word said about me and what Jesus has done for me? Would God's love and acceptance of me 
actually be enough? Or did I desperately need the love and the acceptance of people? If I concluded in, my, in, in, in my, my heart that I must have your love, that I must have your acceptance, that I must have um, your you know, acceptance of me in order for my life to be meaningful, valuable, secure, exciting, or free, then guess what? You become my idol. This church becomes my idol. And I cannot tell you the amount of young pastors and even older pastors who the church is their idol. They have a desperate need for acceptance, a desperate need to feel loved by other people. But I also want you to know this principle doesn't just apply to pastors. It applies to everyone in this room in whatever context uh, you operate in your life. I mean, but here's the deal. If we're truly in Christ, then, then everything that we need, we already possess. He's enough. No idols are required. And here's what I'm learning. I'm learning that the gospel doesn't just free you from what other people think about you. It frees you from what you think about yourself. In other words, you're free. Restlessness, overcommitment, perfectionism, idols. I mean, we just, those are just some of the symptoms that, that, and, and lies that the enemy likes to throw at us constantly. That ultimately, you're not doing enough. No matter what you do, enough is never truly enough. So what do we do? What do we do when lies like this overwhelm us, when they begin to shape our thoughts, when they begin to define us, when they begin to, 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 to shape our behavior and become part of our daily lives? We have to go back to what we've talked about in Genesis chapter 3, and we have to ask ourselves this question, who told you that? Who told you, ladies, that enough is never enough? Who told you, men? That your self-worth and your acceptance is based upon your own performance. Who, who told you that? Who told you that you have to perform to get God's love and approval? Who told you that lie? And as Julie said a moment ago while she was up here in such a great way, we have to take those lies and we have to replace them with truth. And where do we find truth? Not in a self-help book. Not in the Oprah Winfrey show or some other show that's on TV. We find it in God's word. And I realize that Oprah doesn't have a show anymore, by the way, so. It's, that's what we have to take and we have to replace lies with God's truth. So what is the truth? When we are facing this lie that enough is never enough, that you, you could never do enough, what's the truth? Well, first, here's the first truth. Nothing you do could ever make God love and accept you more than he already does. Nothing you do could ever make God love and accept you more than he already does. Listen, listen. we're conditioned in this life to receive acceptance based on our performance. I mean, think of how many arenas of our lives that this applies to. If you perform well, if you perform well, then you're accepted onto a sports team or a drama team or a singing team. Most people go through life, you know, if you have a job, you, you, somewhere along the line, you go through a, year, a yearly review of your work. And if you've performed well, then your acceptance is recognized by a raise or a promotion. Think about school for a moment. How are you, how are you accepted into something like the Honor Society? It's, it's based upon your performance. How are you accepted into the college that you went to or, you know, whatever? I mean, we're, we, we get accepted into whatever level of college we go to based upon a test that was created in the depths of hell, the ACT or the SAT, all right? They're, they're, they were both created in the same little room, all right? And if you were part of creating that, I, I dearly apologize to you, but, but it has caused most of us in this room a tremendous amount of grief. I just want you to, to, to understand that. 
For some of you, for some of you, that this, you experienced this in your home with your parents. Their acceptance of you was totally based upon your performance. Their acceptance of you was totally based upon on, on how well you did on a sports field or how well you did in school or how well you performed at home or how much you, know, you just behaved or whatever. You, you just felt like it was all, you were just like a hamster on a wheel and, and their, their acceptance of you and your, your self-worth in their eyes was just based on how well you did. I mean, we are conditioned to believe that if I perform better and better and if I do more and more and more and more, then somehow I'll be accepted. The better I perform, the more I'll be accepted. But listen to this. God's acceptance of you as his child has nothing to do with your performance. Absolutely nothing to do with your performance. His love for you has nothing to do with, with, your, with what you're doing, your performance. Your performance is not going to gain his love, and it's not going to make you lose his love. Jesus performed so you wouldn't have to. All right? And there's nothing you could do to gain God's acceptance. So God demonstrates the depths of his love for you. How? By giving his son Jesus as a sacrifice for your sin. That's how he performed for you. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so nothing you could do could ever make God love you or accept you more than he, uh, than he already does. The second truth that we have to embrace is that God doesn't want perfectionism. He wants us to join him on a journey of spiritual maturity and growth. Now, here's what some of you might be thinking in your, in your mind right now. Brian, listen, I, I hear what you're saying, but in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, here's what it says. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want to tell you what that means. Every time that you see the word perfect in the New Testament, it's translated complete or mature. Who is the only living being, the only living being that is complete in every way? God. Who is the only living being that's ever walked this earth and has done it in a perfect manner? Jesus. And so if God is calling us to maturity and completion, is there anyone in this room that's going to achieve this in the next hour? No. Is there anyone in this room that's going to achieve it by the end of this day? No. Is there anyone in this room that's going to achieve it at at the end of this week or the end of the next year or the end of five years or the end of ten years? No. It's a journey, isn't it? That's why we use the word journey in our mission statement here at Westridge. God wants us to join him on a journey to become mature, to become complete. It's a journey that involves just loving and growing and serving and sharing. We're called to spiritual maturity. I want to remind you of something when it comes to the Christian faith. This is a marathon, not a sprint. God is not standing every single day at the end of your day with a stopwatch, just looking and waiting to see how well you performed. God is not looking for perfection. He's not looking for a person that's perfect. He's looking for a person who just wants to walk with Jesus and to find their daily confidence through their daily dependence upon him. God is looking, he's looking for a person who just wants to walk with Jesus and find their daily confidence through their daily dependence upon him. So that's a perfect segue into my next point, into the next truth. As we learn to abide with him, More and more, God wants to reveal more of his love and grace and goodness. I love this. We see this word abide in John chapter 15. And it's used 11 different times. And it means to remain or dwell or live connected to Jesus. Now, if you want to read read something that is going to contradict, seems to contradict everything I've said up to this point, 
I want you to look at John chapter 14, verse 21. All right? And I want you to see this verse. And here's what, here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and, my, and will love him and manifest myself, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, I want you to understand, as I unpack that, that we are clearly called to live a life of obedience to God and his word. I mean, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But as we've talked about before, that desire to abide in him and live in obedience is motivated out of a love that was how poured upon us first. My desire to obey, my desire to walk with him, my, it, it, what is, it's motivated out of a love that Jesus and God lavished upon me first. 1 John chapter 4, 19 says, we love, we love because, wow, he loved us first. Now, there are a lot of commentators and a lot of people out there that would look at John chapter 14, verse 21 and say, listen, the more we love him, the more he loves us back. In other words, God loves all of us, but he loves us at a different level based upon our obedience. I actually read a bunch of this this past week. It's all tied to performance. I mean, God actually has like a special group of people out there that he loves more than others because of all based upon our obedience and our performance. I want to put this in context for you. John chapter 14, 19 through 24 is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And Jesus is also talking about the role that he's going to play in the future. And I believe that what Jesus is saying here is this. The more that you abide with God the Father, all right, the more you hang out, the more you dwell, the more you abide with God the Father, the more you're going to experience his love and his goodness and his grace and his kindness. And Jesus says, not only will I love you, but he says, I will also reveal more of myself to you. It's an unveiling, it's an opening, or it's, it's, an, it's, it's, even, it's a greater sense of understanding as he reveals to us. And in turn, we experience more of his love. And it's like, I'm going to show you more. You're going to understand it more deeply. You're going to understand the depths of my love in a way that you never have. My goodness, my grace, my kindness. Psalm chapter 34 verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who who takes refuge in him. John 14 seems to be saying, "You, you you want more of God's love? You want to understand it at a whole different level? Well, listen, you haven't even seen anything yet. Matter of fact, you'll never, I'm going to show it to you as we hang out, and you'll never be able to grasp the depths of it. There will always be more to understand, always be more to, to comprehend. And I can, that, that just excites me. That I will never be able to grasp the depths of God's, of God's love. He's just going to keep revealing more of it to me. I'll never be able to grasp the depths of his grace, the depths of his goodness, the depths of his kindness. But as I hang out with him, he's just going to keep unveiling it and revealing it and opening it. And, and he's going to give me a greater understanding. God already loves you. But as we abide in him and follow his word, we experience his love and his goodness and kindness in ways that we could never imagine. Now let me, let me illustrate it this way to you. Hopefully this will help. I have two sons. And I, I love them equally. I, just, I couldn't even imagine loving one of them more than the other. But if one of them were to decide to spend more time with me, guess what's going to happen? He's going to get to know me better. If one of them is around me all the time, he's going to have a greater understanding of just how I roll. 
He's going to probably go, he's going to understand the depths of my love and my goodness towards him in a greater way. He's going to reveal more. I'm, I'm going to, as a dad, I'm just going to reveal more and more about myself because we're just together. I still love them both the same, but one is abiding. One is hanging out. One is staying connected to me. And as that happens, there's going to be a greater understanding. There's going to be more he's going to learn. There's going to be an unveiling. Why? Because it's about a relationship. And the same is true with our Heavenly Father. It's all about a relationship, a deep, loving, growing relationship with the Father and His children. And I don't know about you, but that motivates me. I'm I'm motivated now not to spend time in God's Word because if I don't, I'm going to have a cruddy day. I want to spend time with God and in His Word because I want to understand more about Him, the depths of His love, His goodness. I want to understand the depths of God at a whole other level. I want to see an unveiling of his goodness and kindness in ways I could never imagine. How does that come about? We abide. We hang out. We dwell. We just spend time in his presence. We just walk alongside of him. His unconditional, never-changing love. When, when, When we learn the depths of it, what do we learn? We learn how it carries us through the challenges and trials of life. When I learn more of the depths of his kindness, you know what it does? It helps me to treat other people with more kindness. When I understand the depths of his goodness and I'm overwhelmed by it, I can be good to other people. I can pour myself out to other people that I may never even thought of being good to. Or as I understand his love, I can can actually love people that I really don't want to love. Now do any of us, do anyone, does anyone in this room deserve this? Do we, do we deserve any of what I've just spoken of? No. It, is it a result of performance and works? No. It's not. Because at the end of the day, and here's the last truth, it's all about God's grace. And I love this word from the Apostle Paul. Paul says when Jesus rose from the dead, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says when Jesus rose from the dead, here's what he did. He first appeared to Peter, then he appeared to the 12 disciples, Then he then appeared to over 500 people at one time. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. And then Paul says something. He says, then he appeared to me. Jesus actually revealed himself to me. And then he says, but I didn't deserve it. Matter of fact, he says, I'm I'm the least of the apostles. I'm actually unworthy to be an apostle because I persecuted Christians. And then he says in verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. You know, we could look at Paul's words and go, man, you're arrogant. But Paul says, listen, he says, I I just want you to understand. He says, when it comes to performance, I worked, I've outworked all the apostles. I am driven. I'm just by nature, I am wired to just go but it's still not about my performance. It's still not about my works. It's all about God's grace. His love, his acceptance, his goodness towards me, his kindness towards me, his blessing of me, any rewards I receive, it's all grace. And I love how Tullian Chavigian defines grace. He says, grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Paul's identity was not anchored in his accomplishments. It was anchored in Christ. 
His strength was not anchored in himself. His strength was anchored in the strength of Christ. His track record, I mean, he said it. I'm not going to boast about it. I'll tell you what it is. But at the end of the day, I'm going to boast about the track record of Jesus. See, God's grace, God's grace frees us from the oppressive pressure to perform, the overwhelming demand to become. The gospel declares that in Christ, we already have everything that we need to be all that he's called us to be. I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, you know, I've struggled probably since I was in high school. I've struggled with this restlessness inside of me. And it's just something that's always churning within me. I'm a very driven person. And truth is, I mean, I feel sometimes like no matter what I do, how much I do, it's just never enough. I mean, I, I helped my dad plant two churches while I was in college. I planted this church. I wrote a book with my wife. I was in a Hollywood movie. I started a church planning network that's, that started over 120 churches. Paul Richardson and I started a nonprofit that provides clean water and builds new churches in a, in a third world country. I started another nonprofit that brings churches together in Atlanta to share the love of Jesus Christ with people all over this place, and I'm continuously helping. And you know what? Uh, just so you know, I, there's, I can't tell how many nights I lay in bed and I wake up at three in the morning and my mind is racing and I'm just going, God, I'm not sure I'm doing enough. I, I don't know if I'm doing enough. I don't want to get to the end of my life and feel like I've not done enough. And you know what God is teaching me right now? God is teaching me what Tim, call, Tim Keller calls the freedom of self-forgetfulness. In other words, my sanctification is not about how much I'm doing or how well I'm doing or if I'm doing enough. It's actually all about forgetting about me and putting my focus on Jesus and what he's already accomplished and what he's doing and the fact that it's a continual process of he must increase and I must what? Decrease. When we take the focus off of ourselves... And trust me, it's not an arrogant, prideful thing. It's just, but when we can learn to take the focus off of ourselves and our performance and we can put it totally on Christ and his performance, what is it that we actually find? We find what we're all looking for. True life and freedom. True life and freedom. I don't have to perform. You don't have to perform. Jesus has already performed. And when he did, he said, it's finished. The the enemy just constantly tells you, you'll you'll never do enough. Enough's never enough. You will never do enough. And God says, enough's already been, enough's enough. It's already been accomplished. So let's hang out. Abide. Let's walk together. Let's journey together. This isn't based upon me with a stopwatch on you. You run as fast as you can and I'll perform you, I'll grade you and then I'll bless you based on all this. No, this is about, and I love this. Look at me, teenagers, look at me. Students, look at me. This is about every day just resting in the finished work of Jesus and just walking with him and as you do, 
as you get to know him and as you walk with him and as you just hang out with him like you would a friend and you dwell with him, guess what? You get to learn more of the depths of his love and as you go through trials and tough times, you realize that that love will carry you through those tough times. You realize he's enough and then you realize his goodness and the depths of it and all of a sudden you're able to be good, you know, reveal, your, share your goodness with people that you might not want to be good to or, and kindness towards people that you may not want to be kind to and because all of a sudden you're realizing that all of this that God God's lavishing upon you and you're getting experience and he's unveiling to you and you're understanding it deeper. None of it is a result of your works. It's a result of what? Grace. I am, Paul says, I am what I am and it's because of his grace. It's not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I don't know about you, but that outlook makes me want to hang out with Jesus. Because he loved me. What's my motivation? I just want to love him in return. I want us to bow our heads for a moment. We're going to take communion, and I want to ask all of our communion servers, if you would, to come. What a great time for us. Because communion is, is it's, about, it's about an opportunity for us to repent of our sins and to take a moment and to allow God to take a look into our hearts and our lives and for us to take advantage of this beautiful gift of repentance that he's allowed us to have. What is repentance? It is a change of mind. It's so powerful that it changes my thoughts and my actions, changes the way I'm going. And we just have an opportunity to confess. And I love what John says. He says, if you'll confess your sins, God is faithful, he's just, he's righteous, and he will, he will forgive you every time. And I know some of you are going, I keep coming with the same sin, keep confessing it. How many times is God gonna actually forgive me? That question was asked of Jesus and he said 70 times seven, and he basically he was saying, every time you come to me. My forgiveness doesn't run out. So whatever your sin may be, whatever you're struggling with at this moment, just confess it to him and receive his forgiveness as a gift of his grace. Communion is also a look at what Jesus has done for us. This juice, this little wafers, it's a, it's a symbol of his body and blood. The blood that was shed for our sins. The body that was broken for our sins. None of any, it, it, there's nothing that I've spoken of this morning that could even be possible without the shed blood of Jesus. Without the sacrifice on the cross without the raising up from the dead. And we get an opportunity as a church to celebrate this, to remember it, to observe it. And so as you come in just a moment, I want you to come with thanksgiving. I want you to come in celebration. I want you to come with joy in your heart. I want you to come thanking God for all that he's done. I want you to remember that it's his grace. But I also want you to, to just, I want you to do it in reverence. I want you to do it in a spirit of realizing that 
even though we do get to abide and dwell and hang out with God, he's still God and we're not. So come with celebration, come with thanksgiving, come with joy. But let's come with reverence. And as you come and as you share, and let me just say this just from a very practical standpoint, um, it is flu season, so as you take the little wafer, don't put your whole hand into the juice or even your finger, just, just dip it down in there. God's not judging you based on how, how deeply you dip the wafer into the juice, okay? You could just touch the wafer with the juice, and I think God's good, okay? It's nothing to do with this. It's just, it's a, it's a remembrance. It's, it's the act. So, Father, we thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for continuing as we abide with you. You're revealing more and more to all of us the depths of your love, the depths of your kindness and your goodness. So much more of your character. We're understanding more and more about grace. And I thank you that, at least for me, it's wrecking me. I love that. And we love you today. Thank you for what you did on the cross. Jesus, thank you. And we want to take a moment and observe that as a body. And so at this moment, if you feel like you're ready, you can take communion and then you are dismissed. And I pray that you will have a blessed week and that you will rest in the grace of God.